Welcome to another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources, where we shine some light on what's going on in your environment. I'm your host, Amy Leffringhouse. And I'm your co-host, Erin Garrett. And today we are here with Dr. Joy O'Keefe, Wildlife Extension Specialist, and she is going to talk to us about providing homes, both natural and artificial, for bats. So we're going to talk all about bats, and we just got through Bat Week, right? A couple weeks ago near end of October. Yeah, there's Halloween. So this is perfect to think about and talk about bats today. So thank you for being here, Dr. O'Keefe. Yeah, thanks so much. So let's start and talk about why should we care about bats? Why should we pay attention to bats? So bats are a really uh, interesting mammal. Uh, So there are close relatives and they are really unique in that bats are the only mammals capable of true powered flight. Uh, They're incredible in terms of their diversity. We have almost 1,500 species of bats found worldwide and they uh, use a variety of structures for roosting, uh, including trees and caves, which you might be familiar with, but also bats will roost in the leaves of palm fronds and they'll uh, roost in termite nests and you know some pretty interesting places pitcher plants and then they eat just about everything so all of our bats here in illinois eat insects but around the world bats are important pollinators and seed dispersers and then there's bats that eat really unique things like fish or other bats and there's actually even bats that eat blood which you may be familiar with the vampire bats there's three species of those So bats are just really cool animals, and bats are actually facing a lot of threats around the world, the primary one being habitat loss, uh, because they're so dependent on these natural roost sites. Uh, Anytime we're taking away or disturbing natural habitats, that can be detrimental for bat populations. Uh, In some parts of the world, bats are persecuted uh, and threatened by hunting, and that doesn't happen as much here in Illinois, luckily, people tend to think fairly fondly of bats, even if they know very little about them. Uh, but then uh, bats are also at risk from disease, uh, white nose syndrome, which is a disease killing our cave hibernating bats during the winter. And then also wind energy. Some of our long distance migrants are uh, coming into conflict with these uh, large scale uh, wind energy sites. Uh, turns out we're putting those in the migratory paths of these bats, and we're seeing a lot of fatalities of certain species. So a lot of things that bats face as threats, um, and given their uniqueness, it's really important to uh, protect these species. So I think it's important for everybody to learn a little bit more about bats and to think about the ways that we can impact them both positively and negatively. In a pitcher plant. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> You're really excited about a little bat roosting in a pitcher plant. That's exciting. Definitely. Well, thanks for that overview. That's a great start. And if we focus in on Illinois... What types of bats can we find here in our state? So all of our bats here in Illinois are the bats that commonly occur here, which is 13 species, are all in the same family, which is the family Vespertilionidae, the evening bats. And those bats are all insectivorous here in Illinois, or, or my student would say, we should say arthropodivorous. And the reason I say that is because they eat not just insects, but also spiders. Uh, so that's really cool. And we have two other species that occasionally show up here. And one of those is in the family Molosity. That's the free-tailed bat. 
you may be familiar with that bat from, say, Texas or the desert southwest where it roosts in caves and bridges by the millions. Here in Illinois, it only shows up occasionally as a kind of an accidental, but it might get established later on. So, and then these bats that roost here and that occur here in Illinois kind of break into maybe three broad categories. So there's bats that roost in caves during the winter, and then that also roost in caves or cave-like structures during the summer. So for example, the federally endangered gray bat, uh, which is naturally adapted to roost in caves, but has moved into bridges. Uh, I'm not aware of a bridge where they roost in Illinois, but it's certainly possible. They're doing that in other parts of the range. Then there are bats that roost in caves during the winter, but roost in trees during the summer. And most of those bats that roost in trees during the summer roost in dead or damaged trees that have cavities or crevices where bats can get underneath bark. Uh, but some of those bats have actually adapted to using human structures in lieu of trees. So for example, the big brown bat, which is probably our most common bat in Illinois, is frequently found in people's houses and barns and sometimes is a nuisance. And that bat probably, we really don't know, but probably historically roosted in very large hollow trees. It's a larger bat. Uh, with larger group sizes. And then the last group of bats is bats that never go into caves. And instead, they, they roost in trees during the summer, and they all roost in the foliage of trees. So they'll roost outside of a tree, hanging on the leaves or hanging on the stems, hiding amongst clusters of dead leaves or just camouflaged uh, within the leaves of the tree. And those bats actually migrate long distances to their wintering sites, just like a lot of birds do. And they don't actually hibernate in a, a site like a, a cave for a long period of time over the winter. So we have these kind of three broad categories of bats, and we have bats within each category in Illinois. That's cool. I When we see bats, a lot of times I live in a, in a city, and so I'm seeing them coming out in the evening, like you were saying, the evening bats. So I'm seeing them flying around my uh, street lights and things like that. So it's just a different fun thing that you could look for. In the mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of those bats, I see bats in my own neighborhood in Urbana, Illinois. And some of those bats are bats that might be roosting in my neighbor's attic. They're not in my attic. I would like them to be in my attic, but I've got against my better judgment and said I should probably keep the window to my attic closed and not let the bats set up shop there. Uh, but they're they're probably roosting in the tops of someone's house, and those would be big brown bats and then coming out at night. But we also have a lot of big trees in my neighborhood, and so there could be eastern red bats roosting in the foliage of the bur oak in my front yard or the maple down the street, and then emerging and foraging. And those bats often forage around streetlights. Yeah, it's neat to see them kind of, they're swooping in their kind of erratic flight pattern is really mm -hmm. neat, neat to watch. So you're talking about, you know, habitat loss and just some of the struggles that, that bats are facing. If we're looking at our own property and we're, we enjoy, you know, we know that bats play a good ecological role um, in our ecosystem. We want to help bats. How would I know um, in my own yard or on my own property, how would I know if that is a good idea for, for my property or my backyard? Sure. So it's actually really hard for people to know this. You know, if you look around your yard and you have a lot of trees, uh, then you may already have good habitat for bats, but you may not even see them because maybe they're, you know, difficult to see with the tree cover or they like uh, somebody else's backyard more and they're foraging over there. 
so it, it's going to be hard to say, like, I have good, bad activity, and I think I should host a bad box. But I can tell you where, if you look around, you see circumstances where it's not going to be necessarily fruitful for you to try to put up a bat box. If you, if you never see bats, if you never see any wildlife, you know, you're in a place where there's hardly any tree cover at all. Um, I sometimes get emails from folks in Chicago who will end up sending me an aerial photo of their backyard and there's nary a tree to be seen, right? And I discourage people from putting up bat boxes in that situation because I think they're probably wasting your time. Bats aren't going to be there if there's nowhere else to roost and there's also nowhere to forage for insects. And some bats will need <clears throat> acres of habitat to forage over in a given night. And so if you just don't have that kind of tree cover nearby, then a, a bat box isn't going to be uh, productive. But, you know, by the same token, you may, if you have a lot of forest cover, the bats may already have a place to roost. When do you put it up? If you have a lot of forest cover and you don't see places to roost and you think that a bat box could be a reasonable place for a colony of bats to set up shop, then you could put it up. And I, I definitely have thoughts on, you know, types of boxes, size of boxes, things like that to kind of share. Definitely. So are there general guidelines that you can share that make a good bat box design versus a not so good design, like size or color or how high it's in the air? What are kind of those general guidelines, if there are any? <laughs> yeah, so there's not one place that you can go and find kind of reliable information that's backed by research studies. And I realized that about 10 years ago when I was doing programs and everybody wants to ask about bat boxes, people really like bats and they want to try to help them. And that's the common thing that you hear about. Well, put up a bat box, that'll be helpful to the bats. But I realized that there wasn't any good guidance on that. So we started conducting research on bat boxes around 2012 in my lab. And so we've done several really deliberate studies. And the most recent thing I've done that I just finished analyzing the data for with my colleague was on pink color. And in kind of wrapping up the findings of my pink color study, I put together a few slides to deliver to a room full of bat biologists that I'll share here that are uh, really kind of just key things to think about when you're building an artificial roost. And I think this is probably true, not just for bats, but for other animals too. So the first thing is thermal mass. How much of the structure is there and how well can it hold heat? And heat is so vital to bats and other organisms because they can you know, use the, the heating from their environment to help maintain their body temperature, thus saving energy. Uh, so even like we go into a warm room and then we don't have to burn as many calories, you know, uh, trying to keep our body temperature at 98.6 because the room helps us to do that. So bats want to be in a warm room too, but of course a box can actually overheat and be dangerous for bats. Uh, so it's, it's some, somewhat of a balance. And if you have a large enough structure with enough thermal mass, then it will heat slowly and it will also hold heat longer into the night when it's actually really cold. Uh, and bats need that warmth even more. So thermal mass is the first thing. We have achieved that in our lab by building bigger bat boxes that are taller, that um, have dense wood. So we actually recently built some boxes where the outside layer was made out of oak and the inside was pine. Water jacket design has packets of water in the walls of the box. And that sounds kind of complicated, but what that does is it pulls in that heat 
holds it in the water packets and then could keep the inside of the box warmer longer. And it does work. So that's number one. Now, number two is something that we all think about all the time. You know, you probably have uh, in the past five years paid some attention to the insulation in your house. Well, we should pay attention to insulation in bat boxes too. So adding a layer of insulation to keep that heat. Once the heat is there, you want to keep it in. And that will help boxes to stay warm longer into the night and also reduce the chances of them overheating during the day. So adding some sort of an insulative layer, uh, which I have to admit, we haven't really played around with coupling insulation with thermal mass. And that's something we want to work on in my lab. Then ventilation is really key. So if you think, you know, basic physics, bat boxes tend to be kind of tall. The ones we build are usually about three feet tall. So the heat is going to accumulate at the top of the box over the course of the day. And the top of the box is going to be really hot. If you have a few vents, some of that heat can escape. You could also add a chimney. We've tried this. What we found is when you add a chimney, the box tends to just lose that heat, never gets really hot. So that's good, but it also could be bad, right? Depends on the climate, on whether or not a chimney is a good idea. But I Definitely can tell you that some vents are critical because we found that boxes with no vents get really hot. And then the last thing I would consider in terms of the design of the box itself is paint color. And experimenting with paint color from white to black and a variety of grays in between, we found that anything over about a 40% gray, if you think about just white to black, that kind of spectrum, is much more likely to overheat during the day. And people tend to paint their boxes dark colors because they think, you know, that's going to keep it warmer, but it, it gets warm during the day, very quickly loses that heat at night. Doesn't matter if it's black or if it's light gray after the sun falls, you know, and there's no more light, no more solar radiation, the color doesn't affect the temperature in the box. So I would advise for a relatively light colored box, not white because it won't gain much heat that way, but that has some thermal mass, has some insulation and considers uh, ventilation, you know, to allow that heat to escape. Put it uh, 12 to 15 feet off the ground because bats need some space to drop out. And you want to put it in a solar exposed location where bats can find it and where it will heat up during the day uh, as they like that. That was a lot of lecture material. <laughs> Put your checklist out. <laughs> yeah. Right. Take some notes. This is this might be a silly question, but the bats that are in Illinois, are they using these bat boxes year round? I know in the early in the podcast you were saying, you know, some come to some places to roost during the winter and then to the summer. Do they use those bat boxes year round or so depending on the species, I guess? Yeah, it's not likely that any bats would be able to use a bat box year round in Illinois just because they will get so cool. If it's not sunny, like today it's not sunny where I am. And so a bat box is actually going to be almost the same as the outside air temperature. It's when you add sun that it heats up. And um, so on a warm winter day, a bat box might heat up, but we have a lot of cloudy winter days. And so they're just not good roosts for bats generally. Uh, the bats that are using these are the bats that hibernate in caves during the winter and then that use um, trees or that use other structures that are cavity-like during the summer. So. Okay. Um, a variety of species will use bat boxes, uh, but they will generally only use them from about April to September or October. Okay. After hearing your description of all of the different factors that go into building a bat box, 
When we think about what types of bats are most likely to use a bat box in Illinois, are they ones that really do need that extra help? They need that roost? Um, or are they more of our common bats that, you know, t tend to find that box and use it, but don't necessarily need that as an extra, you know, help for them? So the most common bats that will use bat boxes in Illinois are going to be our big brown bats and our evening bats. And neither of those species is actually at risk from really greatly at risk from white nose syndrome or wind energy. Those two, two species are doing okay in the Midwest and in Illinois. And big brown bats in particular often, as I mentioned earlier, roost in people's houses and barns. And they will use a bat box if you put it up but if the barn is better, they'll use the barn most of the time. And it's hard to compete with a barn because it's just a giant bat box, right? And it has a lot of microclimates, a lot of places for bats to choose. They can go high when they're cold. They can go low when they're hot. And there's lots of nooks and crannies for them to pack into. And it can hold a lot of bats. Bat boxes are inferior because they have less space and they can overheat and they get really cool. But a bat box on the outside of a barn sometimes will be occupied more often the other species that is most likely to use artificial roosts in Illinois is actually the federally endangered Indiana bat. And we've had uh, several projects, and so have a lot of other folks now, where Indiana bats have occupied artificial roosts of various types. And that sounds like a really good thing, but it's also a little bit scary because we don't know what we're giving them, right? We don't know how good of a substitute it is for their uh, natural habitat. And we have seen some issues with uh, bats using these artificial roosts and have uh, some concerns about what we're providing them. And that's why we're trying to improve the science behind these so we can make these structures better for bats. But the average homeowner in Illinois is not going to have Indiana bats in their backyard because this bat really likes to be in big tracts of forest, um, most common in southern Illinois, where there's a lot of forest around the Shawnee uh, national forests, but also in other places along river corridors where there's big patches of trees. That's where Indiana bats are commonly found. So putting up a bat box in your backyard is most likely to attract big brown bats or evening bats. And neither of those species really needs the boxes, but they will definitely use them. So we've talked a lot about bat boxes. Are there other ways that we can provide um, roosts for bats um, in the areas that we can control or that we have, that we can, you know, manipulate. Yeah. How do you feel about killing the trees in your backyard? And <laughs> what kind of tree? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's challenging because they really do. Uh, most of the bats that will use bat boxes are going to benefit from either dead or damaged trees. Sometimes they'll roost in like a dead branch on an oak tree. But other times it's the entire tree is dead and the bark has started to pop away. We've all seen trees like that on the edge of a field, uh, like a big cottonwood tree that's got a big white trunk and then patches of dark bark on it. That's a great bat roost. And if you have one of those protecting that kind of tree, you know, giving it space to do its thing for a few years, they may last as long as five or 10 years in that state. That could be a great bat roost. And bats are really used to those ephemeral kinds of roosts that you know come and go and so they have to be aware of the other ones and the surroundings for the average homeowner's backyard you're not going to be able to provide dead trees but you know if you can if you have enough acreage then i would certainly consider that uh, otherwise you know maintaining 
large trees that can provide habitat for other bats, like the bats that roost in the foliage, is really valuable to do. And I would encourage everyone to try to keep some large trees around in your neighborhood. And even if you don't have control over, you know, you can't provide trees in your own backyard, maybe there's a neighborhood park that you could work to plant trees in and think long term, because hopefully the bats are going to be around for a long time and they're going to, you know, find this habitat that you planted now, 50, 70 years from now, and it's going to be really good habitat for bats. So, so you have to do, you have to look into the future when you're thinking about bat habitat. So if I can't put up a box in my yard and I don't have suitable trees for roosts in my yard, what can I do to help bats? Oh gosh, good question. So you really want to help bats. Boxes might not work. You can't kill all the trees in your backyard. Your neighbors wouldn't appreciate that. What do you do? I would say plant native plants. Although this method is not proven to benefit bats yet, I can't see why it wouldn't benefit bats. We know that native plants promote our moth and beetle populations and sometimes flies. And those are the three main prey groups for bats. Now it's pretty broad prey groups, moths, beetles, and flies, but they eat all of this. And so there's actually lists of plants. I have a nice book called Gardening for Moths. If you look at that book, you can plant some of the plants that will promote moths, thereby feeding your local bat population because those insects will filter up into the night sky and the bats that are flying over your neighborhood will benefit from them as well as, of course, your birds. Uh, Also turning off your lights at night. You mentioned... Uh, Amy, that you've seen bats flying around streetlights, but we know that insects um, are negatively affected by streetlights and that that kind of causes confusion for them. So it might actually make it easier for bats to catch them, Uh, but we want to preserve our insect populations so that we can preserve our long-term, our bat populations. So doing things that make it uh, better for insects is is ultimately going to make it better for bats. So, and then protecting your big uh, old trees anywhere they occur, um, especially oak trees or other trees that promote a lot of insects. So oaks support a lot of insect diversity. So I really heartily encourage anyone to plant and protect oaks. That's going to help your bats too. I'm very fortunate. I live um, in West Central Illinois, right across the river from Hannibal, mm-hmm. which um, you've probably been there, Joy, but so Dallas Nature Preserve um, has an I don't know the cave. I don't know if it was man-made, but it they found you know Indiana bats and and obviously probably other types of bats there. But it's they've been they've done a lot of work on talking about bats and talking about the Indiana bats in our um, promotional markets over here. So cool, that's good. Good. Yeah, that that mine has over two hundred thousand Indiana bats roosting in it during the winter. Mm-hmm. And but if you look at the surrounding landscape, it's a city park. Right. It's chock full of bush honeysuckle, non-native invasive species. And I'm on a mission, although I haven't honestly done that much so far, but I, I want, I'm talking to folks about ways to remove that honeysuckle and restore native plants there because that's going to boost the foraging opportunities for the bats around that mine. And obviously with that many bats, right, that's a great place to do it. There was actually an article I digress here, but an article in the paper this past weekend that an ecology class um, th- through Hannibal High School, I think, went out there and they were working on the bush honeysuckle. So nice. they're doing some good work. I'll just add in real fast. If you are looking for a resource to be able to tell what native plants support which types of insects, 
Illinois Extension put out a pollinator website that you can find at illinoispollinators.org. And there is a plant database that lists the different types of pollinators that each of the native plants supports. So if you really want to work on supporting bats and you want to provide plants that support moths, um, you can look that information up there. So it always comes back to native plants on the podcast. Each episode, Joy, that's what you didn't know, but we always loop it back. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Joy, for sharing your knowledge today um, about providing homes, both natural and artificial, for bats in our areas. But now it's time uh, for our special spotlight. So this is the point of the show where we all shine a, a light on some natural phenomenon or something in nature that you've seen that you thought was really cool this month. So Erin, do you want to start us off on your special spotlight? Sure, I can start. A few weeks ago, I was in Indiana hiking at Harmony State Park, and we found a giant shagbark hickory tree that had recently fallen um, to the ground. And I think those trees are just really cool in general. I love the way that the bark, you know, kind of sloughs off in those big pieces, but you usually like the best examples of it are like way up in the canopy that you can't see up close. And this one was down so we could walk along the whole tree and see it up close. And it was just really cool to see and imagine all the little microhabitats that all the different critters are using in this tree and to kind of get to see it up close. So didn't actually see anything in there, but it was just cool to kind of see that um, up close and, and get the chance to explore it. So that was my little special spotlight for this month. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. What about you, Joy? So uh, about a month ago, towards the beginning of November, I was out and able to observe folks capturing northern sawwet owls, which is our uh, smallest owl in Illinois. And although most people have probably never seen or heard one because they don't call here during the winter when they hang out here, they they uh, are a boreal owl that comes down from the Canada to hang out here during the winter. Uh, they're out there. There's tons of them out there. We are able to catch them pretty easily around Champaign and, and to the east of Champaign. And it's such a cute little owl. Uh, and really cool. And you can use a UV light to uh, shine on its wing and actually get the age of the bird by the the way the light um, appears on their feathers. So really neat uh, to be able to be part of that. Oh, yeah. That's really cool. That sounds awesome. Well, my special spotlight isn't as cool as a northern sawwet owl experience, but um, a friend and I uh, were looking for um, some seeds and things for an educational program and we knew a place where there was this pretty big baroque tree. And um, I don't know how many years old it was, but we found a corn cat at the base of the tree. There were at least three to three and a half inches around. And it was just, I don't know, just one of those things where you're like, oh my gosh, I've never seen um, an acorn cap that big and then I took it to an educational program with students and they were just like what is that they couldn't even believe you know and then I had another you know kind of I think it was a white oak or chinkapin acorn cap you know next to them and, and they just couldn't believe it so that was kind of just a neat little thing that that we found out there that we were 
again, we weren't expecting. So that was neat. I mean, we were able to find something cool, but yeah, it was exceeded our expectations. <laughs> well, this has been another episode of the Spotlight on Natural Resources podcast. Check us out next month where we will talk about, or we will talk with Micah Vera about Salwat Owl. So Joy, you were just talking about Salwat Owl. So tune in next month on our podcast and we will learn more about them. Mm-hmm.